With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recovery Road. I'm your host, Merritt Hartplay, and this is where we bring together the mental health, substance abuse, wellness, and self-care communities to discuss issues of the day. I'm very excited about this week's episode, but first, if you're listening to this show, you can find us on all your favorite podcast platforms or at Brandis Enterprises backslash B hyphen the hyphen voice. You can also find my book, Lost Innocence, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery on Amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback versions. So I wanted to take another time out this week to provide some personal commentary on my observations over the past uh, couple of years. Um, I did a show like this a couple of weeks ago. As most of you know, I've spent the last uh, five or six months working with families who have been struggling uh, with the loss of a child or a family member due to fentanyl murders. And we've talked, I talked at pretty length about that. But what I want to really talk about today is uh, my observation and work in regards to the fields of mental health and substance abuse. You know, I think that even though it's gotten a little bit better in this country, there's still a huge stigma when it comes to mental health. Most people have the uh, idea that if somebody's going to see a psychiatrist, that something must be really messed up or wrong with them, but that's so not the case. You know, most psychiatrists these days don't even do therapy. They just prescribe medication and charge you a lot of money and we'll see you in 30 days. Um, as I've always said, uh, I think that therapy is a very healthy thing. And unfortunately, because of the stigma, most people who are struggling with some type of mental health issue, it could be uh, depression, it could be anxiety, it, it could be ADHD, it could be a variety of things. I think that, you know, I've been doing work in the substance abuse field and mental health field for about 10 years. And I've pretty much found that 90% of the people that struggle with substance abuse also struggle with mental health issues. And I think that a vast majority of the population, whether they have a substance abuse problem or not, also struggle with mental health issues. But I think most people are brought up and society overall, people are brought up believing that, you know, you don't talk about your problems, you brush it under the carpet. If you were to go to ask for help, that would be a sign of weakness. I believe in working on myself, you know, and, and, I, and I've shared with most people that I just celebrated 13 years of sobriety. So I've, I've been on both sides of, of the picture, but I think that I have found that, you know, most people who are struggling, um, the unfortunate part of it is that they don't seek out the help that they need. And now you compound that with a lack of treatment facilities. So uh, in talking with a lot of these uh, parents over the last five or six months and hearing their stories about their children, and again, I'm not judging people. I just think that what I'm hearing is that, unfortunately, a lot of children 
even a lot of adults, don't get the care that they need. They don't get the proper mental health treatment. They don't get the proper treatment from their doctors. And again, I'm not judging doctors, but I can tell you through my personal experience, uh, uh, one of the biggest battles that I fight on a regular basis, as well as the associates that I work with, is working with doctors who are continually, specifically primary care doctors, continually prescribing medications they have no business prescribing, you know? And as I've shared many times, you know, only in the last, you know, up until the last 15 years, maybe, uh, medical schools did not teach addiction medicine. So if you have a doctor who is an old school doctor and who hasn't been trained in addiction medicine and you go to your doctor and you tell him, you know, I can't sleep, I'm stressed out, I have anxiety. Well, he'll start prescribing medications to you, but maybe you're not telling him the whole truth. Maybe you're not telling the doctor that, you know, you have a couple or two or three martinis or two or three glasses of wine every day. That just compounds the issue. You know, I, I, again, I think it's really a lack of education on a big part. You know, the, the treatment facility where I work here in Long Island, we have an amazing family program. And for as long as I've been doing uh, substance abuse and mental health treatment, I have found that the, one of the biggest parts that's, mi that's missing is a lack of education, right? Family members, for the most part, if they have somebody who's struggling with uh, drug abuse or alcoholism, it's easy to just point the finger and say, you know what, you're the drug addict, you're the alcoholic, it's your job to get better, and I'll just be waiting for you when that happens. Well, guess what? That will never, ever work because drug addiction is a family disease. And I think a lot of families don't really understand that. You know, they talk about self-will. You know, why can't my son, why can't my daughter, why can't my husband, why can't my wife just stop? It's not about that, okay? Addiction, drug addiction, alcoholism, it's a chronic disease, okay? And there is no cure, but there are treatment plans. I mean, I said to a mom who, you know, couldn't handle the fact that her son just couldn't stop doing heroin and you know why can't he just stop and i'm thinking like and she was going to throw him out of the house i said would you do that if your son was a diabetic and just wasn't taking his insulin would you do that if your son was a cancer patient and just wasn't taking his chemo you know so at the end of the day i think it's a lack of education and a lack of knowledge where i really think and again i'm going i'm going into a lot of different places here but just bear with me i think that it really has to start in the schools. You know, uh, over this last pandemic, and I can tell you, you know, a lot of these families that I've talked to, you know, one of the first moms that I talked to, uh, Amanda Faith, you know, her son Luca was only 12 years old. He was stuck at home because of COVID, no social interaction with his friends, goes on Snapchat. There are predators on social media, predators on Snapchat, sold him, uh, I think it was a Vicodin or a Percocet, it was laced with fentanyl and Luca died. So I think that there's a much deeper issue here. You know, I got to tell you when, uh, when my son was growing up, when he was in um, middle school and uh, elementary school and middle school and a good part of high school, you know, I took it upon myself as well as his mom to make sure that he was outside playing sports, not in front of his computer all day long. And I can tell you that these days when I drive around my old neighborhoods and where I live now, there's a lot of empty ball fields. So where are these kids? 
most of these kids have become addicted to social media. And believe me, social media is an addiction. I was working with a couple of families last year where they had one family had a son who was 16 years old and was addicted to video games to the point where this kid wouldn't even get up to go to the bathroom. He kept an empty Coke bottle by his computer so that he could pee into the Coke bottle and not take a takeaway time from being on the video games. So we have a real problem. And again, I'm not judging parents. I'm not saying they're not doing the right thing. I'm not saying they're doing the wrong thing. I just believe that it's gotta go back to the schools. And I believe that parents need to take a different role or a greater role in, the kids or their, in, in their kids' lives. You know, um, a couple of years back when I was going to grad school, uh, I was working at a high school as a social worker and I couldn't believe how hard it was to get parents to come and take part in after-school programs. In fact, when I was working in Binghamton, the, the sad part of that was that it was probably one of the highest numbers in the nation, 20% of grandparents raising their grandkids. That's a pretty sad scenario because a lot of these, grandpa a lot of these grandparents are just hoping to coast through the, the last year, you know, the, the best years of their life. And now they have to be parents again because one parent's not there, both parents aren't there. So I think we've got to take it to the schools. You know, um, before COVID hit, uh, I do a lot of work in uh, elementary schools, middle schools, uh, high schools, and, and colleges. And when I talk to a lot of the students, they tell me that, you know, it was very difficult for them to talk to their parents about things that were going on in their life. And again, I'm not judging the parents, but for some reason, the children said that, you know, they couldn't talk, they didn't go talk to their mom about everything. They didn't go talk to their dad about everything. So they talk to their friends, you know, and they're hanging out with their friends. And then of course, maybe they have some friends making bad choices, you know, smoke this joint, take this pill, everything's gonna be fine. You know, I can tell you uh, with a lot of um, patients that I work with today, who let's say could be in their 40s or 50s or 60s, they will tell me that when they were young kids, they didn't have the connection to be able to talk to somebody about their problems, okay? And again, I'm not judging families, but I think that we have to really take this to the schools. I think that schools have to take a greater role in educating our kids on substance abuse and mental health. You know, we kind of just, it's kind of one of those taboo things that we don't really talk about. And if a kid is struggling, he needs to be able to talk to somebody. You know, again, when I worked at this one high school in Binghamton, I, it was in an area of the city where there was a lot of these kids were coming from very traumatized backgrounds, but the teachers weren't trained on how to deal with trauma. It wasn't until the last year that I was there that all of a sudden there were now trauma informed systems of care coming out. So teachers were starting to be trained in trauma. And I've talked to some teachers who just, or people have just become teachers. And I'm finding that a lot of schools where people go to become teachers, the schools aren't teaching addiction. They're not teaching trauma. And that needs to be taught because if you have a kid who's being bullied and doesn't have anybody to talk to, you know, I don't want to talk about the high rates of suicides with young kids because they have nobody to talk to. So if you take that formula for disaster where you have a kid who's got nobody to talk to, talks to his friends, winds up self-medicating using drugs. So now you've got the drugs masking the mental health issues and before you know it, you've got some serious, serious problems. Now, of course, the whole fentanyl crisis takes it to a whole different level. But here's the thing. 
if a kid is taking a Percocet, if a 14-year-old kid is taking a Percocet or a Vicodin from a friend to relax, we have a big problem there. Why should a kid have to take a pill to be able to relax, to get rid of the anxiety? So I think, you know, again, it's a combination of parents being able to really recognize what's going on with their kids. The schools have to take a much bigger role in educating, uh, you know, because of this whole fentanyl crisis, uh, uh, a guy out in California, Ed Turnin, started a great program called uh, Songs for Charlie in regards to his son who passed away. And, these, and some of these programs are being rolled out at schools across the country. But, you know, there's so much more that has to be done. Uh, I just think that as, a, and I hate to use the word society, but as a society, I think that we are missing the boat in regards to the real issues. You know, uh, if kids are struggling, if adults are struggling, you know, I was talking to one mom uh, several months ago and what happened with her kid was that he was in between jobs. He didn't have any medical insurance or dental insurance. He had a really bad toothache. And the mom was like, well, you just got a job. Hold on for another couple of days. You'll have some insurance. He couldn't wait because the pain was so bad. Knew somebody who had some pain pills, uh, took a Vicodin. Unbeknownst to him, he's taking the Vicodin to try to relieve the toothache. Unbeknownst to him, the Vicodin is laced with poison, with fentanyl, and he dies the next day. Segmenting from that, you know, as a substance abuse counselor, mental health uh, counselor, one of my biggest issues has been over these last 10 years is that people are not getting the care they need. You know, we're in one of the greatest countries in the world. And I can't tell you how many people, how many people, how many kids I know that overdosed and died because they couldn't get into a good inpatient program. They couldn't get into an outpatient program. Uh, suicides because of schizophrenia and bipolar and issues where they couldn't get into a mental health clinic. Unless I'm being naive, and this is just my viewpoint, that's a big problem. I believe that nobody, nobody should be turned away. I don't care. Insurance, no insurance, they shouldn't be turned away. You know, over the years, I've had the opportunity to work with a lot of veterans, the first responders. And the hard, cold fact is that, you know, our country, and again, I'm not getting into the politics, but based on my experience, our country spends a lot of money to train these soldiers, to turn them into killing machines. And then we send them over to Afghanistan or Iraq or wherever, and they wind up killing people, seeing horrific things, you know, trauma times a hundred, right? Now they come back to this country, they get discharged from service, and they're kind of really kicked to the curb. I mean, I've worked with vets who were sent to the VA, but all the VA does is shoot them up with psychotropic meds. That's not the answer. The answer is we need to get them sober because a lot of these soldiers that I've talked to wind up getting addicted to drugs while they're fighting war. Now they come back and they're addicted to opiates or whatever it is. And they've got, now they've got post-traumatic stress syndrome. How do we deal with that? Well, the idea is we have to get them abstinent. We have to get them clean so that we can start to talk about the trauma. The problem is, is that it's so hard these days. One of the biggest battles that I fight every day as a clinician and my associates would, would, would concur 
is fighting with insurance companies. It's almost impossible these days to get somebody covered for a true 28 days in inpatient treatment, whether it's mental health, whether it's substance abuse. So what do you do with somebody who's been addicted to heroin for a long, long, long time, and now you can only get them maybe four or five days inpatient? What is four or five? Four or five days is going to basically get them through the detox period. But once you get them through the detox period, what are you going to do about getting to the core matter? You know, really getting to the heart of the matter. Let's talk about what's going on inside the shattered soul. You know, years and years of abuse, years and years of trauma. You know, I work with a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, ex-firemen. I work with policemen. You know, uh, they do a lot of work every day. I mean, this is a good example. You know, I work with somebody who was um, working uh, for the medical examiner's office and uh, seeing one horrible thing after another. Could go through maybe a day of seeing seven or eight horrible murders. And then go home, go to sleep, get up the next day and do it again. No supervision, no uh, sitting down and talking about this stuff. So if it's happening at that level, imagine what's happening to a 10-year-old kid who's been through some type of abuse or has been bullied or is not getting a chance to talk about uh, anxiety or things that are going on. What is a kid supposed to do? And again, I'm not judging parents because it's, sometimes it's very hard for a parent to recognize what's going on. But Again, going back to what I said earlier, I think as a society, we really need to take a time out and revisit the way that our kids are being treated and educated in schools. And I've shared this many times, you know, it, it takes a community. It takes a community to make this work. But at the same time, if you've got a whole community in denial, I mean, perfect example, I had a kid years ago uh, who had been smoking pot for most of her life. Now she's trying to stop smoking pot, okay? So she's coming to outpatient. She's coming to group three, four days a week for three hours at a clip. She's going to Narcotics Anonymous or Alcoholics Anonymous to try to take care of her addiction. But now she goes home and dad is out in the garage smoking a joint. So how does that work? I mean, it can't work if the parents are sending the wrong message to their kids. So. For me, you know what? If society had its choice, everybody would be comfortably numb. And it's a sad fact. I mean, I, I believe that, you know, everybody out there in our world, in our country is addicted to something. You know, it could be a sex addiction. It could be shopping. It could be food. It could be clothing. It could be gambling. It could be a lot of things. And, why, and what's happening is that people are finding a way to self-medicate so they can get through the day. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that's no way to live to just kind of get through. I mean, do you want to just kind of like exist in life or do you want to participate in life? And I can tell you from my own personal experience that it's very difficult when you're just existing, you know, on the outside to all, all your friends and your family, it might look great. You know, you dress well, you've got a good job, you drive a nice car, but at the end of the day, it's a tortured soul on the inside. And it's a big problem. You know, I talk a lot about it in my book. Um, my personal experience for me and then working with people in mental health and substance abuse for the last 10 years is that most people spend their lives living 
based on other people's expectations for them. And that's a horrible way to live. Think about that. And I'm sure some of you listening to the show can agree with that. I mean, people will tell me, patients will tell me that, you know, they spent a good part of their life, not living the life they wanted, but living the life that other people wanted them to live. And then you wake up one day and you say like, what happened? I just spent 30 years trying to live a life that everybody else wanted me to live. And on the inside, I was miserable. And I can tell you that that's what happened to me, personal experience, you know, that I lived my life. I put on the costume every day. The appearance was that everything was going okay on the outside, but on the inside, I was miserable, but I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know what to do about it. I would, you know, again, I'm not, uh, I'm not judging my parents, but I think all parents do the best that they can do. So we can't blame mom. We can't blame dad. We can't blame people for what happened to us. But at some point, we have to take responsibility. So I think that, you know, it all starts with children as young as they are. And I think right now, parents need to become more educated. I wish that schools had after school programs on substance abuse, on drug addiction, on mental health issues. I mean, there's some good organizations out there, but we need more. We need more, and it's got to come from the schools. The problem is that. A lot of schools, unfortunately, don't really want to deal with the problem. You know, I've talked about this once before. I was working with a school district out here in Long Island and uh, maybe uh, a community of 6,000 families. And the problem was that it was a community in denial. You know, it's like, it's not going to happen to my kid. It's not going to, you know, unless it's happening to them, it's not a problem, you know? And I think that's really the problem. It's like, especially now, you know, when I was younger, and a lot of you out there who are now boomers when you were younger, so we experimented with drugs, we smoked pot, we drank, we did other things, but we never did that with the intention of killing ourselves. Those days of social usage are over, you know, because I can tell you that everything out there is being laced with fentanyl. You know, there's been, uh, I, there's been a dozen cases of kids that have died from fentanyl-laced marijuana. You know, it's in everything. It's in Xanax, it's in Adderall, it's in anything. Like I've always said, if you're not getting your medication from your doctor, from the pharmacy that you work with, don't do it. So it goes back to what I was going to say earlier was that if a kid is taking a pill at 11 years old to try to de-stress, that's a real problem, okay? We have to be able to reconnect with our children. We have to bring programs into the schools so that children know that it's okay to talk about their feelings. It's okay to talk about their emotions. Most addicts that I work with in recovery now will tell me that for most of their lives, they self-medicated so they didn't have to feel anything. So they didn't have to have any emotions. They didn't know how to deal with feelings and emotions. So as soon as a feeling or an emotion came up, they self-medicated to shut it down. So, you know, We've gone through some tough times in this country with this pandemic, and it's not the last time I'm sure that we'll go through things like that. But we've got to better prepare ourselves as individuals, as families, so that the next time something like this happens, you know, we can, our kids can talk about it. We can talk about it. I know a lot of families that, you know, uh, you know, I went to, I went out to dinner. I, this was before, this was probably about 20 months ago, before the pandemic hit. I was out having dinner one night, like to go out once in a while by myself, have a dinner. I was looking at a family of four sitting next to me, two parents, and the two kids were probably maybe, I don't know, 12, 15 years old. 
The four of them were sitting at the table, but nobody was talking to each other. They were all on their tablets or their phones. And I looked at that in disbelief. And I was like, I wanted to go up to this family and ask them, why were they even at the restaurant? They should just have been home ordering takeout. The, the, the family unit has broken down for a variety of reasons. So I think we need to get back to that. Family members that are listening to this, you know, if you have younger kids, I mean, I know that COVID forced families to get back together, but we have to do more. We have to do more. A kid, an adult should not be self-medicating. We need to be able to, as a society, embrace mental health. We have to embrace addiction and substance abuse as chronic diseases. It's not just a bad person making bad choices. Drug addiction creates a chemical change in the brain. It's not a kid who's being bad or a kid who's making bad choices. It's a disease. And as soon as, as a society, we come together and educate ourselves and have the schools start educating students about this. And listen, the 12 steps of AA and NA, if any of you are familiar with the 12 steps, if you take away the first step, it has nothing, the steps have nothing to do with alcohol and drugs. The 12 steps talk about a way of life. And when I go into schools, again, whether it's elementary, uh, middle school, high school or colleges, I bring in the principles of the 12 steps and I talk to people. I, for example, I was lecturing uh, in a college uh, last semester. It was a classroom of 25 freshmen. And I said to the students, how many of you are in this school because your parents want you to be here? And all these hands went up. And then I said, how many of you are in the school because your parents said, if you don't pay the tuition, if you, know, if you don't stay in the school, they're not gonna pay the tuition. All these hands went up. So I basically said, all right, everybody who raised your hand, my advice is go back to your dorm, pack your bags and go home. Because if you're in this school for anybody but you, it's never going to work. And that goes back to what I said earlier about expectations. That's a horrible way to live when you live your life based on other people's expectations for you. You know. So again, I think it goes back to like, as families, as parents with young kids, we really need to support their dreams. You know. It's not so much telling them you have to do this, you have to do that. It's supporting their dreams. It's guiding them in the right direction, but it's letting them become the person that they are meant to be. Uh, most addicts that I work with now in recovery, they could be in their 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, or 60s. When they start to get abstinent and they start to work in their sobriety, one of the greatest gifts they tell me is that they're getting a chance to become the person they were always meant to be. Now, why should it take a lifetime to become the person you're always meant to be. That should be something that gradually happens as we grow older. And we should be surrounded by people that support that, a society that supports that instead of shunning it and saying, oh, if you're stressed out, if you have anxiety, you should be in a mental hospital. Believe me, that is not the answer. The answer is being able to talk about your feelings, talk about your emotions. So again, I just wanted to take uh, some time this week to talk about my, you know, my experiences, my thoughts that as a country, we have so much work to do. You know, we have to, we have to come together as a nation. Uh, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna spend too much time talking about the fentanyl crisis. You know, all of you who've listened to my program know how involved I am. You know, it was down, I spoke at a rally in Washington, DC on August 27th outside the Chinese embassy, nothing's happening. You know, there are, there are people out there fighting this fight every day but I don't understand when 
hundreds of kids are dying every day, okay? Hundreds of factories in China are mass producing fentanyl. The Chinese are working with the Mexicans, cartels. It's coming across our borders and everybody's turning the other way. This has got to stop. I'm telling you, I'm not, I don't want to make a political statement, but this has got to stop because God forbid, if this country had to go to war in the next couple of years, there wouldn't be enough kids to draft because they're all dead. So we've got to stop it. We've got to stop the bleeding and we've got to really take a look at a, creating more grassroots organizations. If you're involved in your kid's school, great. If you're not, please get more involved. Please make sure that our schools are starting to incorporate programs where they discuss mental health more, where they discuss substance abuse more. There are ways that can be taught. Like I said, Ed Turnage program, Songs for Charlie. It's a great way of teaching kids about addiction. No child, no child, no adult should have to take a pill to find peace of mind. Because believe me, if it's a Percocet or a Vicodin or any kind of opiate, you have no idea how quickly the brain becomes addicted to opiates. So, you know, when you go to your dentist, you know, and you're getting a tooth pulled, the answer isn't to have your dentist write a prescription for 30 Percocets, you know, ibuprofen works just fine. So again, my message is that we need to come together as a, as a country. We need to come together as families, as communities. We need to support our children, support people that are struggling with addiction and mental health. If you know somebody who's struggling with mental health, talk to them, help them get help. If you know somebody who's struggling with substance abuse, help them get the help. It's out there. We just have to work a little bit harder. So again, thank you for letting me uh, share my uh, commentary this evening. Uh, remember, you can get my book, Lost Innocence, My Journey from Addiction to Recovery on amazon.com in both Kindle and paperback versions. And soon will be coming the audio uh, version of the book. And again, remember, if you want something you've never had, do something you've never done. Carpe diem, God bless. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.